Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, mystery lovers, and welcome back to Chapters 7 and 8 of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. Let me bring you up to date. When our narrator, Dr. Shepard, arrives at Fernley Park, the butler, Parker, denies having made the phone call and is unaware of any murder. They break down the door to Roger's study, which has been locked from inside, to find Roger dead with a dagger in his neck. Mrs. Farrar's letter is missing. The police are called to the scene and find footprints leading into and out of the study through an open window. They interview everyone in the house, but no one saw anything unusual. The police can't find Ralph, last seen earlier in the day at the Three Boars Inn where he was staying. They collect a pair of Ralph's boots to compare with the muddy footprints and find that they match. The next day, Flora visits Caroline and Dr. Shepard to ask for their help. Flora explains that their new neighbor is the famous detective Hercule Poirot, and she asks Dr. Shepard to accompany her to request his involvement in the case to clear Ralph, to whom she is engaged. Although Poirot has retired from active police work, he listens to Flora's plea. Poirot warns Flora that if he were to take the case, he would not stop until he has the whole truth, and she agrees to his terms. So that gives you a little bit of background and a little bit of forward going into today's two chapters, chapters 7 and 8. And now chapter 7, I Learn My Neighbor's Profession. On the following morning, I hurried unforgivably over my round. My excuse can be that I had no very serious cases to attend. On my return, Caroline came into the hall to greet me. Flora Ackroyd is here, she announced in an excited whisper. What? I concealed my surprise as best I could. She's very anxious to see you. She's been here half an hour. Caroline led the way into our small sitting room, and I followed. Flora was sitting on the sofa by the window. She was in black, and she sat nervously twisting her hands together. I was shocked by the sight of her face. All the color had faded away from it. But when she spoke, her manner was as composed and resolute as possible. Dr. Shepard, I have come to ask you to help me. "'Of course he'll help you, my dear,' said Caroline. "'I don't think Flora really wished Caroline to be present at the interview. "'She would, I am sure, have infinitely preferred to speak to me privately. "'But she also wanted to waste no time, so she made the best of it. "'I want you to come to the Larches with me.' "'The Larches?' I queried, surprised. 
"'To see that funny little man?' exclaimed Caroline. "'Yes. You know who he is, don't you?' "'We fancied,' I said, "'that he might be a retired hairdresser.' Flora's blue eyes opened very wide. "'Why, he's Hercule Poirot. "'You know who I mean, the private detective. "'They say he's done the most wonderful things, "'just like detectives do in books. "'A year ago he retired and came to live down here. "'Uncle knew who he was.' "'but he promised not to tell anyone, "'because Monsieur Poirot wanted to live quietly "'without being bothered by people. "'So that's who Mr. Poirot is,' I said slowly. "'You've heard of him, of course.' "'I'm rather an old fogey, as Caroline tells me,' I said. "'But I have just heard of him.' "'Extraordinary,' commented Caroline. "'I don't know what she was referring to, "'possibly her own failure to discover the truth.' "'You want to go and see him?' I asked slowly. "'Now why?' "'To get him to investigate this murder, of course,' said Caroline sharply. "'Don't be so stupid, James.' "'I was not really being stupid. "'Caroline does not always understand what I'm driving at.' "'You haven't got confidence in Inspector Davis?' I went on. "'Of course she hasn't,' said Caroline. "'I haven't either.' "'Anyone would have thought it was Caroline's uncle who had been murdered.' "'And how do you know he would take up the case?' I asked. "'Remember, he has retired from active work.' "'That's just it,' said Flora simply. "'I've got to persuade him.' "'You are sure you're doing wisely?' I asked gravely. "'Of course she is,' said Caroline. "'I'll go with her myself if she likes.' "'I'd rather the doctor came with me, if you don't mind, Miss Shepherd,' said Flora. "'She knows the value of being direct on certain occasions. "'Any hints would certainly have been wasted on Caroline.' "'You see,' she explained, following directness with tact, "'Dr. Shepherd being the doctor, and having found the body, "'he would be able to give all the details to Monsieur Poirot.' "'Yes,' said Caroline, grudgingly. "'I see that.' "'I took a turn or two up and down the room. "'Flora,' I said gravely, "'be guided by me. "'I advise you not to drag this detective into the case.' "'Flora sprang to her feet. "'The color rushed into her cheeks. "'I know why you say that,' she cried, "'but it's exactly for that reason I'm so anxious to go. "'You are afraid, but I'm not. "'I know Ralph better than you do.' "'Ralph?' "'said Caroline. "'What has Ralph got to do with it?' "'Neither of us heeded her. "'Ralph may be weak,' continued Flora. "'He may have done foolish things in the past, "'wicked things even. "'But he wouldn't murder anyone.' "'No, I agree. "'No, no, I never thought it of him.' "'Then why did you go to the Three Boars last night?' "'demanded Flora, on your way home, "'after Uncle's body was found.' I was momentarily silenced. I had hoped that that visit of mine would remain unnoticed. How did you know about that? I countered. I went there this morning, said Flora. I heard from the servants that Ralph was staying there. I interrupted her. You had no idea that he was here in King's Abbot? No, I was astounded. I couldn't understand it. I went there and asked for him. They told me what I suppose they told you last night. "'that he went out at about nine o'clock yesterday evening "'and never came back. 
Her eyes met mine defiantly, and as though answering something in my look, she burst out. "'Well, why shouldn't he? He might have gone anywhere. He may even have gone back to London.' "'Leaving his luggage behind?' I asked gently. Flora stamped her foot. "'I don't care. There must be a simple explanation.' "'And that's why you want to go to Hercule Poirot. "'Isn't it better to leave things as they are? "'The police don't suspect Ralph in the least, remember? "'They're working on quite another tack.' "'But that's just it,' cried the girl. "'They do suspect him. "'A man from Cranchester turned up this morning. "'Inspector Raglan. "'A horrid, weasley little man. "'I found he'd been to the Three Boers this morning before me.' They told me all about his having been there and the questions he had asked. He must believe that Ralph did it. Well, that's a change of mind from last night, if so, I said slowly. He doesn't believe in Davis's theory that it was Parker? Parker, indeed, <laughs> said my sister, and snorted. Flora came forward and laid her hand on my arm. Oh, Dr. Shepard, let us go at once to this Monsieur Poirot. He will find out the truth. "'My dear Flora,' I said gently, laying my hand on hers, "'are you quite sure it's the truth we want?' She looked at me, nodding her head gravely. "'You're not sure,' she said. "'I am. I know Ralph better than you do.' "'Of course he didn't do it,' said Caroline, who had been keeping silent with great difficulty. "'Ralph may be extravagant, but he's a dear boy.' "'and he has the nicest manners.' "'I wanted to tell Caroline "'that large numbers of murderers "'have had nice manners, "'but the presence of Flora restrained me. "'Since the girl was determined, "'I was forced to give in to her, "'and we started at once, "'getting away before my sister "'was able to fire off any more pronouncements "'beginning with her favorite words, "'Of course. "'An old woman with an immense Breton cap "'opened the door of the larches to us. "'Monsieur Poirot was at home, it seemed.' "'we were ushered into a little sitting-room "'arranged with formal precision, "'and there, after the lapse of a minute or so, "'my friend of yesterday came to us. "'Monsieur le docteur,' he said, smiling. "'Mademoiselle!' "'He bowed to Flora. "'Perhaps,' I began, "'you have heard of the tragedy "'which occurred last night?' "'His face grew grave. Well, "'But certainly I have heard. "'It is horrible. "'I offer Mademoiselle all my sympathy.' "'In what way can I serve you?' "'Miss Ackroyd,' I said, "'wants you to—to—' to, "'To find the murderer,' said Flora, in a clear voice. "'I see,' said the little man. "'But the police will do that, will they not?' "'They might make a mistake,' said Flora. "'They are on their way to make a mistake now, I think. "'Please, Monsieur Poirot, won't you help us? "'If—if if it is a question of money—' Poirot held up his hand. "'Not that, I beg of you, mademoiselle. "'Not that I do not care for money.' "'His eyes showed a momentary twinkle. "'Money, it means much to me, and always has done. "'But no, if I go into this, you must understand one thing clearly. "'I shall go through with it to the end. "'The good dog, he does not leave the scent. "'Remember, you may wish that, after all—' "'You had left it to the local police.' "'I want the truth,' said Flora, "'looking him straight in the eyes. "'All the truth, all the truth.' "'Then I accept,' said the little man quietly. 
"'and I hope you will not regret those words. "'Now, tell me all the circumstances.' "'Dr. Shepherd had better tell you,' said Flora. "'He knows more than I do.' "'Thus enjoined, I plunged into a careful narrative, "'embodying all the facts I have previously set down. "'Poirot listened carefully, inserting a question here and there, "'but for the most part sitting in silence, his eyes on the ceiling.' I brought my story to a close with the departure of the inspector and myself from Fernley Park the previous night. "'And now,' said Flora, as I finished, "'tell him all about Ralph.' I hesitated, but her imperious glance drove me on. "'You went to this inn, the Three Boers, last night, on your way home?' asked Poirot, as I brought my tale to a close. "'Now, exactly why was that?' I paused a moment to choose my words carefully. I thought someone ought to inform the young man of his uncle's death. It occurred to me after I had left Fernley that possibly no one but myself and Mr. Ackroyd were aware that he was staying at the village. Poirot nodded. Quite so. That was your only motive in going there, eh? That was my only motive, I said stiffly. It was not to, shall we say, reassure yourself... "'About ce jeune homme?' "'Reassure myself.' "'I think, monsieur le docteur, "'that you know very well what I mean, "'though you pretend not to do so. "'I suggest that it would have been a relief to you "'if you had found that Captain Paton "'had been at home all evening.' "'Not at all,' I said sharply. "'The little detective shook his head at me gravely. "'You have not the trust in me of Miss Flora.' he said. But no matter. What we have to look at is this. Captain Paton is missing, under circumstances which call for an explanation. I will not hide from you that the matter looks grave. Still, it may admit of a perfectly simple explanation. That's just what I keep saying, cried Flora eagerly. Poirot touched no more upon that theme. Instead, he suggested an immediate visit to the local police. He thought it better for Flora to return home, and for me to be the one to accompany him there and introduce him to the officer in charge of the case. We carried out this plan forthwith. We found Inspector Davis outside the police station looking very glum indeed. With him was Colonel Melrose, the chief constable, and another man whom, from Flora's description of Weasley, I had no difficulty in recognizing as Inspector Raglan from Cranchester. I know Melrose fairly well, and I introduced Poirot to him and explained the situation. The chief constable was clearly vexed, and Inspector Raglan looked as black as thunder. Davis, however, seemed slightly exhilarated by the sight of his superior officer's annoyance. "'The case is going to be plain as a pikestaff,' said Raglan. "'Not the least need for amateurs to come butting in. You'd think any fool would have seen the way things were last night.' "'and then we shouldn't have lost twelve hours.' "'He directed a vengeful glance at poor Davis, "'who received it with perfect stolidity. "'Mr. Ackroyd's family must, of course, "'do what they see fit,' said Colonel Milrose. "'But we cannot have the official investigation "'hampered in any way. "'I know Monsieur Poirot's great reputation, of course,' "'he added courteously. "'The police can't advertise themselves. "'Worse luck,' said Raglan. It was Poirot who saved the situation. It is true that I have retired from the world, 
he said. "'I never intended to take up a case again. "'Above all things, I have a horror of publicity. "'I must beg that in the case of my being able to contribute something "'to the solution of the mystery, my name may not be mentioned.' "'Inspector Raglan's face lightened a little. "'I've heard of some very remarkable successes of yours,' observed the Colonel, thawing. "'I have had much experience.' "'said Poirot quietly. "'But most of my successes have been obtained "'by the aid of the police. "'I admire enormously your English police. "'If Inspector Raglan permits me to assist him, "'I shall be both honoured and flattered.' "'The inspector's countenance became still more gracious. "'Colonel Melrose drew me aside. "'From all I hear, "'this little fellow's done some really remarkable things,' "'he murmured. "'We're naturally anxious,' "'that we're naturally anxious not to have to call in Scotland Yard. "'Raglan seems very sure of himself, "'but I'm not quite certain that I agree with him. "'You see, I, er, know the party's concerned better than he does. "'This fellow doesn't seem out after kudos, does he? "'He would work in with us unobtrusively, eh?' "'Yes, to the greater glory of Inspector Raglan,' I said solemnly. "'Well, well!' "'said Colonel Melrose breezily in a louder voice. "'We must put you wise to the latest developments, Monsieur Poirot.' "'I thank you,' said Poirot. "'My friend, Dr. Shepherd, said something of the butler being suspected.' "'That's all bunkum,' said Raglan instantly. "'These high-class servants get in such a funk "'that they act suspiciously for nothing at all.' "'What about the fingerprints?' I hinted. "'Nothing like Parker's. "'He gave a faint smile and added, "'And yours and Mr. Raymond's don't fit either, doctor.' "'What about those of Captain Ralph Patton?' asked Poirot quietly. "'I felt a secret admiration for the way he took the bull by the horns. "'I saw a look of respect creep into the inspector's eye. "'I see you don't let the grass grow under your feet, Mr. Poirot. "'It will be a pleasure to work with you, I'm sure. "'We're going to take that young gentleman's fingerprints "'as soon as we can lay hands on him.' "'I can't help thinking you're mistaken, Inspector,' said Colonel Melrose warmly. "'I've known Ralph Patone from a boy upward. "'He would never stoop to murder.' "'Maybe not,' said the Inspector, tonelessly. "'What have you got against him?' I asked. "'He went out just on nine o'clock last night. "'He was seen in the neighborhood of Fernley Park somewhere about nine-thirty. "'Not been seen since. "'Believed to be in serious money difficulties.' "'I've got a pair of his shoes here, shoes with rubber studs in them. "'He had two pairs, almost exactly alike. "'I'm going up now to compare them with those footmarks. "'The constable is up there seeing that no one tampers with them.' "'We'll go at once,' said Colonel Melrose. "'You and Monsieur Poirot will accompany us, will you not?' "'We assented, and all drove up in the Colonel's car. "'The inspector was anxious to get at once to the footmarks, "'and asked to be put down at the lodge.' About halfway up the drive, on the right, a path branched off which led round to the terrace and the window of Ackroyd's study. "'Would you like to go with the inspector, Monsieur Poirot?' asked the chief constable. "'Or would you prefer to examine the study?' Poirot chose the latter alternative. Parker opened the door to us. His manner was smug and deferential, and he seemed to have recovered from his panic of the night before. Colonel Melrose took a key from his pocket and unlocking the door which led into the lobby, he ushered us through into the study. 
"'except for the removal of the body, Monsieur Borrow. "'This room is exactly as it was last night.' "'And the body was found where?' "'As precisely as possible, I described Ackroyd's position. "'The armchair still stood in front of the fire. "'Poirot went and sat down in it. "'The blue letter you speak of, where was it when you left the room?' Mr. Ackwood had laid it down on this little table, at the right hand. Poirot nodded. Except for that, everything was in its place? Yes, I think so. Colonel Meldros, would you be so extremely obliging as to sit down in this chair a minute? I thank you. Now, Monsieur le Docteur, will you kindly indicate to me the exact position of the dagger? I did so whilst the little man stood in the doorway. The hilt of the dagger was plainly visible from the door then. Both you and Parker could see it at once? Yes. Poirot went next to the window. The electric light was on, of course, when you discovered the body? He asked over his shoulder. I assented, and joined him where he was studying the marks on the window sill. The rubber studs are the same pattern as those in Captain Paton's shoes, he said quietly. Then he came back once more to the middle of the room. His eye traveled round, searching everything in the room with a quick, trained glance. Are you a man of good observation, Dr. Shepard? he asked at last. I think so, I said, surprised. There was a fire in the grate, I see. "'When you broke the door down and found Mr. Ackroyd dead, "'how was the fire? Was it low?' "'I gave a vexed a laugh. "'I really can't say. I didn't notice. "'Perhaps Mr. Raymond or Major Blunt.' "'The little man opposite me shook his head with a faint smile. "'One must always proceed with method. "'I made an error of judgment in asking you that question. "'To each man his own knowledge.' "'You could tell me the details of the patient's appearance. "'Nothing there would escape you. "'If I wanted information about the papers on that desk, "'Mr. Raymond would have noticed anything there was to see. "'To find out about the fire, "'I must ask the man whose business it is to observe such things. "'You permit.' "'He moved swiftly to the fireplace and rang the bell. "'After a lapse of a minute or two, Parker appeared. "'The bell rang, sir.' "'he said, hesitatingly. "'Come in, Parker,' said Colonel Melrose. "'This gentleman wants to ask you something.' "'Parker transferred a respectful attention to Poirot. "'Parker,' said the little man, "'when you broke down the door with Dr. Shepard last night "'and found your master dead, "'what was the state of the fire?' "'Parker replied without a pause. "'It had burned very low, sir. "'It was almost out.' "'Ah!' said Poirot. The exclamation sounded almost triumphant. He went on. "'Look round you, my good Parker. Is this room exactly as it was then?' The butler's eyes swept round. It came to rest on the windows. "'The curtains were drawn, sir, and the electric light was on.' Poirot nodded approval. "'Anything else?' Uh, "'Yes, sir.' This chair was drawn out a little more. He indicated a big grandfather chair to the left of the door between it and the window. Just show me, said Poirot. 
"'The butler drew the chair in question out a two good feet from the wall, "'turning it so that the seat faced the door. "'No one would want to sit in a chair in such a position, I fancy. "'Now, who pushed it back into place again, I wonder? "'Did you, my friend?' "'No, sir,' said Parker. "'I was too upset with seeing the master at all.' "'Poirot looked across at me. "'Did you, doctor?' "'I shook my head.' "'It was back in position when I arrived with the police, sir,' put in Parker. "'I'm sure of that.' "'Curious,' said Poirot again. "'Raymond or Blunt must have pushed it back,' I suggested. "'Surely it isn't important.' "'It is completely unimportant,' said Poirot. "'That is why it's so interesting,' he added softly. "'Excuse me a minute,' said Colonel Melrose.' "'He left the room with Parker. "'Do you think Parker's speaking the truth?' I asked. "'About the chair? Yes. "'Otherwise, I do not know. "'You will find, Monsieur le Docteur, "'if you have much to do with cases of this kind, "'that they all resemble each other in one thing.' "'What is that?' I asked curiously. "'Everyone concerned in them has something to hide.' "'Have I?' I asked, smiling. Poirot looked at me attentively. "'I think you have,' he said quietly. "'Have you told me everything known to you about this young man, Patton?' He smiled as I grew red. "'Oh, do not fear. I will not press you. I shall learn it in good time.' "'I wish you'd tell me something of your methods,' I said hastily to cover my confusion. "'The point about that fire, for instance.' "'Oh!' "'That was very simple. "'You leave Mr. Ackroyd at ten minutes to nine, was it not?' "'Yes, exactly, I should say.' "'The window is then closed and bolted, and the door unlocked. "'At the quarter past ten, when the body is discovered, "'the door is locked and the window is open. "'Who opened it? "'Clearly only Mr. Ackroyd himself could have done so, "'and for one of two reasons, "'either because the room became unbearably hot,' "'But since the fire was nearly out, we know now, "'and there was a sharp drop in temperature last night, "'that cannot be the reason. "'Or, because he admitted someone that way, "'and if he admitted someone that way, "'it must have been someone well known to him, "'since he had previously shown himself uneasy "'on the subject of that same window. "'That sounds very simple,' I said. "'Everything is simple, "'if you arrange the facts methodically.' "'We are concerned now with the personality of the person who was with him at 9.30 last night. "'Everything goes to show that that was the individual admitted by the window, "'and though Mr. Ackroyd was seen alive later by Miss Flora, "'we cannot approach a solution of the mystery until we know who that visitor was. "'The window may have been left open after his departure, "'and so afforded entrance to the murderer, "'or the same person may have returned a second time.' "'Ah, here is the colonel who returns.' "'Colonel Melrose entered with an animated manner. "'That telephone call has been traced at last,' he said. "'It did not come from here. "'It was put through to Dr. Shepard at 10.15 last night "'from a public call office at King's Abbott Station. "'And at 10.23 the night mail leaves for Liverpool.' "'We'll return with Chapter 8.' But right after these sponsor messages.
And now chapter 8, from The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, by Agatha Christie. Inspector Raglan is confident. Inspector Raglan and I looked at each other. You'll have inquiries made at the station, of course? I said. Naturally, but I'm not over sanguine as to the result. You know what that station is like? I did. King's Abbot is a mere village, but its station happens to be an important junction. Most of the big expresses stop there, and trains are shunted, resorted, and made up. It has two or three public telephone boxes. At that time of night, three local trains come in close upon each other to catch the connection with the express for the north, which comes in at 10.19 and leaves at 10.23. The whole place is in a bustle, and the chances of one particular person being noticed telephoning or getting into the express are very small indeed. But why telephone at all? "'demanded Milrose. "'That's what I find so extraordinary. "'There seems no rhyme or reason in the thing.' "'Poirot carefully straightened a china ornament "'on one of the bookcases. "'Be sure there was a reason,' he said over his shoulder. "'But what reason could it be?' "'When we know that, we shall know everything. "'This case is very curious and very interesting. "'There was something almost indescribable "'in the way he said those last words.' I felt that he was looking at the case from some peculiar angle of his own, and what he saw, I could not tell. He went to the window and stood there, looking out. "'You say it was nine o'clock, Dr. Shepherd, when you met this stranger outside the gate?' He asked the question without turning around. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I heard the church clock chime the hour.' "'How long would it take him to reach the house, to reach this window?' "'for instance. Uh, "'I'd say five minutes at the outside, two or three minutes only if he took the path "'to the right of the drive and came straight here. "'But to do that, he would have to know the way. "'How can I explain myself? "'It would mean that he had been here before, "'that he knew his surroundings.' "'That is true,' replied Colonel Melrose. "'Can we find out if Mr. Ackroyd had received "'any strangers during the past week?' "'Yes, Raymond could tell us that,' I said. "'Or Parker,' suggested Colonel Melrose. "'Or Tuledoux,' suggested Poirot, smiling. "'Colonel Melrose went in search of Raymond, "'and I rang the bell once more for Parker. "'Colonel Melrose returned almost immediately, "'accompanied by the young secretary, "'whom he introduced to Poirot. "'Jeffrey Raymond was fresh and debonair as ever.' "'He seemed surprised and delighted to make Poirot's acquaintance. "'Had no idea you'd been living amongst us incognito, Monsieur Poirot,' he said. "'It would be a great privilege to watch you at work. "'Hello, what's this?' "'Poirot had been standing just to the left of the door. "'Now he moved aside suddenly, "'and I saw that while my back was turned, "'he must have swiftly drawn out the armchair "'till it stood in the position Parker had indicated. "'Want me to sit in the chair whilst you take a blood test?' "'asked Raymond good-humouredly. "'What's the idea?' "'Mr. Raymond, this chair was pulled out, just so. "'Last night, when Mr. Ackroyd was found killed, "'someone moved it back again into place. "'Did you do so?' "'The secretary's reply came without a second's hesitation. "'No, indeed, I didn't. "'I don't even remember that it was in that position, "'but it must have been, if you say so. "'Anyway, somebody else must have moved it back to its proper place.' "'Had they destroyed a clue in doing so? "'Too bad.' "'It is of no consequence,' said the detective. 
of no consequence whatsoever. What I really want to ask you is this, Mr. Raymond. Did any stranger come to see Mr. Ackroyd during this past week? The secretary reflected for a minute or two, knitting his brows, and during the pause, Parker appeared in answer to the bell. No, said Raymond at last. I can't remember anyone. Can you, Parker? I beg your pardon, sir. Any stranger come in to see Mr. Ackroyd this week? The butler reflected for a minute or two. "'Yes, there was the young man who came on Wednesday, sir,' he said at last. "'From Curtis and Trout. I understood he was.' Raymond moved this aside with an impatient hand. "'Oh, yes, I remember. But that's not the co- but that is not the kind of stranger this gentleman means.' He turned to Poirot. "'Mr. Ackroyd had some idea of purchasing a dictaphone,' he explained. "'It would have enabled us to get through a lot more work in a limited time. The firm in question sent down their representative.' "'but nothing came of it. "'Mr. Ackroyd did not make up his mind to purchase.' "'Poirot turned to the butler. "'Can you describe this young man to me, my good Parker?' Um, "'Yes. He was fair-haired, sir, and short. "'Very neatly dressed in a blue serge suit. "'A very presentable young man, sir, for his station in life.' "'Poirot turned to me. "'The man you met outside the gate, doctor, was tall, was he not?' "'Yes.' I said, somewhere about six feet, I should say. Ah, there is nothing in that, then, declared the Belgian. I thank you, Parker. The butler spoke to Raymond. Mr. Hammond has just arrived, sir, he said. He's anxious to know if he can be of any service, and he would be glad to have a word with you. I'll come at once, said the young man. He hurried out. Poirot looked inquiringly at the chief constable. "'The family solicitor, Monsieur Borrow, said the latter. "'It is a busy time for this young Mr. Raymond,' murmured Poirot. "'He has the air efficient, that one. "'I believe Mr. Ackroyd considered him a most able secretary. "'He has been here how long? "'Just on two years, I fancy. "'His duties he fulfills punctiliously. "'Of that I am sure.' "'In what manner does he amuse himself? "'Does he go in for le sport?' "'Private secretaries haven't much time for that sort of thing,' "'said Colonel Melrose, smiling. "'Raymond plays golf, I believe, at tennis in the summertime.' "'He does not attend the courses? "'I mean the, the running of the horses?' "'Race meetings? "'No, I don't think he's interested in racing.' "'Poirot nodded and seemed to lose interest.' "'He glanced slowly round the study. "'I have seen, I think, "'all that there is to be seen here. "'I, too, looked round. "'If those walls could speak,' I murmured. "'Poirot shook his head. "'A tongue is not enough,' he said. "'They would have to also have eyes and ears. "'But do not be too sure that these dead things,' "'he touched the top of the bookcase as he spoke.' are always dumb. To me they speak sometimes. Chairs, tables, they have their own message. He turned away towards the door. What message? I cried. What have they said to you today? He looked over his shoulder and raised one eyebrow quizzically. And opened the window, he said. I locked the door. 
a chair that apparently moved itself? To all three, I say, why? And I find no answer. He shook his head, puffed out his chest, and stood blinking at us. He looked ridiculously full of his own importance. It crossed my mind to wonder whether he was really any good as a detective. Had his big reputation been built up on a series of lucky chances? I think the same thought must have occurred to Colonel Melrose, for he frowned. "'Anything more you want to see, Monsieur Poirot?' he inquired brusquely. "'You would perhaps be so kind as to show me the silver table from which the weapon was taken? After that I will trespass on your kindness no longer.' We went to the drawing-room, but on the way the constable waylaid the colonel, and after a muttered conversation the latter excused himself and left us together. I showed Poirot the silver table, and after raising the lid once or twice and letting it fall, he pushed open the window and stepped out on the terrace. I followed him. Inspector Raglan had just turned the corner of the house and was coming towards us. His face looked grim and satisfied. "'So, there you are, Monsieur Poirot,' he said. "'Well, this isn't going to be much of a case. I'm sorry, too. A nice enough young fellow gone wrong.' Poirot's face fell, and he spoke very mildly. "'I'm afraid I shall not be able to be of much aid to you, then.' "'Next time, perhaps,' said the inspector soothingly, "'though we don't have murders every day in this quiet little corner of the world.' Poirot's gaze took on an admiring quality. "'You have been of marvellous promptness,' he observed. "'How exactly did you go to work, if I may ask?' "'Certainly,' said the inspector. "'To begin with, method. That's what I always say. Method.' "'Ah!' cried the other. That, too, is my watchword. Method, order, and little gray cells. Little gray cells? said the inspector, staring. The little gray cells of the brain, explained the Belgian. Oh, yeah, of course, well, well, we all use them, I suppose. In a greater or lesser degree, murmured Poirot. And there are, two differences in quality. Then there is the psychology of crime. One must study that. Ah, said the inspector, you've been bitten with all this psychoanalysis stuff. Now I'm a plain man. Mrs. Raglan would not agree, I am sure, to that, said Poirot, making him a little bow. Inspector Raglan, a little taken aback, bowed. You don't understand, he said, grinning broadly. "'Lord, what a lot of difference language makes. "'I'm telling you how I set to work. First of all, method. "'Mr. Ackroyd was last seen alive at a quarter to ten by his niece, Miss Flora Ackroyd. "'That's fact number one, isn't it?' "'If you say so.' "'Well, it is. "'At half-past ten, the doctor here says that Mr. Ackroyd has been dead at least half an hour. "'You stick to that, doctor?' "'Certainly,' I said. "'Half an hour or longer.' "'Very good. That gives us exactly a quarter of an hour in which the crime must have been committed. I make a list of everyone in the house, and work through it, setting down opposite their names where they were and what they were doing between the hour of 9.45 and 10 p.m.' He handed a sheet of paper to Poirot. I read it over his shoulder. It ran as follows, written in a neat script. "'Major Blunt, in billiard room with Mr. Raymond. 
Ladder confirms. Mr. Raymond, billiard room. See above. Mrs. Ackroyd, 9.45, watching billiard match. Went up to bed 9.55. Raymond and Blunt watched her go up the staircase. Miss Ackroyd, went straight from her uncle's room upstairs. Confirmed by Parker. Also housemaid, Elsie Dale. Servants, Parker, went straight to Butler's Pantry. Confirmed by housekeeper, Miss Russell, who came down to speak to him about something at 9.47 and remained at least ten minutes. Miss Russell, as above, spoke to housemaid, Elsie Dale, upstairs at 9.45. Ursula Bourne, parlourmaid, in her own room until 9.55, then in servants' hall. Mrs. Cooper, cook, in servants' hall. Gladys Jones, second housemaid, in servants' hall. Elsie Dale, upstairs in bedroom, seen there by Miss Russell and Miss Flora Ackroyd. Mary Thripp, kitchen maid, servants' hall. The cook has been here seven years, the parlor maid eighteen months, and Parker just over a year. The others are new. Except for something fishy about Parker, they all seem quite all right. A very complete list, said Poirot, handing it back to him. I am quite sure that Parker did not do the murder, he added gravely. So is my sister, I struck in, and she's usually right. Nobody paid any attention to my interpolation. That disposes pretty effectually of the household, continued the inspector. Now we come to a very grave point. The woman at the lodge, Mary Black, was pulling the curtains last night when she saw Ralph Patone turn in at the gate and go upwards towards the house. She's sure of that? I asked sharply. Quite sure. She knows him well by sight. He went past very quickly and turned off by the path to the right, which is a shortcut to the terrace. And what time was that? asked Poirot, who had sat with an unmovable face. Exactly twenty-five minutes past nine, said the inspector gravely. There was a silence. Then the inspector spoke again. It's all clear enough. It fits in without a flaw. At twenty-five minutes past nine, Captain Patone is seen passing the lodge. At nine-thirty or thereabouts, Mr. Jeffrey Raymond hears someone in here asking for money and Mr. Ackroyd refusing. What happens next? Captain Patone leaves the same way, through the window. He walks along the terrace, angry and baffled. He comes to the open drawing-room window. Say it's now a quarter to ten. Miss Flora Ackroyd is saying good night to her uncle. Major Blunt, Mr. Raymond, and Mrs. Ackroyd are in the billiard room. The drawing-room is empty. He steals in, takes the dagger from the silver table, and returns to the study window. He slips off his shoes, climbs in, and, well, I don't need to go into details. Then he slips out again and goes off. Hadn't the nerve to go back to the inn. He makes for the station. Brings up from there. Why? said Poirot softly. I jumped at the interruption. The little man was leaning forward. His eyes shone with a queer green light. For a moment, Inspector Raglan was taken aback by the question. It's difficult to say exactly why he did that, he said at last. But murderers do funny things. You'd know that if you were in the police force. The cleverest of them make stupid mistakes sometimes. But come along, I'll show you those footprints. We followed him round the corner of the terrace to the study window. At a word from Raglan, a police constable produced the shoes which had been obtained from the local inn. 
"'The inspector laid them over the marks. "'They're the same,' he said confidently. "'That is to say, they're not the same pair that actually made these prints.' "'He went away in those. "'This is a pair just like them, but older. "'See how the studs are worn down?' "'Surely a great many people wear shoes with rubber studs in them?' asked Poirot. "'Yes, that's so, of course,' said the inspector. "'I shouldn't put so much stress on the footmarks if it wasn't for everything else.' "'A very foolish young man, Captain Ralph Peton, said Poirot thoughtfully, "'to leave so much evidence of his presence.' "'Ah, well,' said the inspector. "'It was a dry, fine night, you know.' "'He left no prints on the terrace or on the graveled path. "'But unluckily for him, "'a spring must have welled up just lately "'at the end of the path from the drive. "'See here. "'A small graveled path joined the terrace a few feet away. "'In one spot, a few yards from its termination, "'the ground was wet and boggy. "'Crossing this wet place, "'there were again the marks of footsteps, "'and amongst them the shoes with rubber studs. "'Poirot followed the path on a little way, "'the inspector by his side.' "'You noticed the women's footprints?' he said suddenly. The inspector laughed. "'Naturally. But several different women have walked this way. And men as well. It's a regular shortcut to the house, you see. It would be impossible to sort out all the footsteps. After all, it's the ones on the windowsill that are really important.' Poirot nodded. "'It's no good going further,' said the inspector, as we came in view of the drive. "'It's all graveled again here.' "'and hard as it can be.' "'Again Poirot nodded, "'but his eyes were fixed on a small garden house, "'a kind of superior summer house. "'It was a little to the left of the path ahead of us, "'and a graveled walk ran up to it. "'Poirot lingered about "'until the inspector had gone back towards the house. "'Then he looked at me. "'You must have indeed been sent from God "'to replace my friend Hastings,' "'he said with a twinkle. "'I observe that you do not quit to my side.' "'How say you, Dr. Shepherd? "'Shall we investigate that summer house? "'It interests me.' "'He went up to the door and opened it. "'Inside, the place was almost dark. "'There were one or two rustic seats, a croquet set, "'and some folded deck chairs. "'I was startled to observe my new friend. "'He had dropped to his hands and knees "'and was crawling about the floor. "'Every now and then he shook his head "'as though not satisfied. "'Finally he sat back on his heels.' "'Nothing,' he murmured. "'Well, perhaps he was not to be expected. "'But it would have meant so much.' "'He broke off, stiffening all over. "'Then he stretched out his hand to one of the rustic chairs. "'He detached something from one side of it. "'What's that?' I cried. "'What have you found?' "'He smiled, unclosing his hand "'so that I should see what lay in the palm of it. "'A scrap of stiff white cambric.' I took it from him, looked at it curiously, and then handed it back. "'What do you make of it, eh, my friend?' he asked, eyeing me keenly. "'Um, scrap torn from a handkerchief?' I suggested, shrugging my shoulders. He made another dart and picked up a small quill, a goose quill by the look of it. "'And that!' he cried triumphantly. "'What do you make of that?' I only stared. He slipped the quill into his pocket, "'and looked to get at the scrap of white stuff. "'A fragment of a handkerchief,' he mused. "'Perhaps you are right. "'But remember this. "'A good laundry, 
does not starch a handkerchief. He nodded at me triumphantly. Then he put away the scrap carefully in his pocketbook. Thanks for joining us this evening for Chapters 7 and 8 of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. We really do appreciate reviews, and we have some recent reviews to share with you. I'm going to share a batch of reviews that cover a few different 1001 shows. Here are some recent ones. First one, five stars. Classic stories with a terrific narrator. What a great voice. And that's for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Reminds me of my grade four teacher who read us similar stories. I find listening to the narrator's voice so soothing and relaxing. I often listen at the end of a hectic day. Perfect for unwinding just before sleep. Truthfully, I often nod off in the middle and have to listen again the next day. The stories are old classics and a bit predictable if you've read the genre much, but it is the narrator that makes the difference. Turn the lights off, close your eyes, and open your imagination. Just great. Down from Quabby, 55, Apple Podcast, Canada. Quabby, 55, thank you. I'm humbled. Thank you very much. What a kind review. And this one. 1001 Stories for the Road. More, please, multi-episode, please. Five stars. I'm a big fan of all the 1001 Stories podcast, especially the long multiple-episode books. I especially like 1001 Stories for the Road. Great variety and fun way to listen to and learn about things I wouldn't normally have thought to listen to. Keep up the great work. They're from Kajsa 2, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, five stars. What a wonderful podcast. John is such a terrific storyteller, and I especially like his commentary that he occasionally adds to the end of a story. All of his podcasts make for the perfect companion while driving or doing hobbies. Them from Barbara, 277, Apple Podcast, U.S. Barbara, thank you so much. And Kajsa, too, thank you so much. And this one, The Show. And again, this is 1001 Stories for the Road, this one. Five stars. I'm an elderly lady in ill health. This series is my secret pleasure. I listen at night by myself and find it so enjoyable to have great literature read really well. I thank you so much for this great entertainment. That one from Clyde's Apple Podcast, U.S. Clyde's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I've got to tell you, I'm just as excited as you are to hear these stories. <laughs> I've never read them. In many cases, I've never read them before. So it's a journey for me, too. And it's just something I really enjoy doing. What makes it great is that I know a lot of you out there enjoy it as well. And these reviews let me know. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm humbled. Well, that's it for this evening. Next week, Sunday night, look for chapters 9 and 10. From Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It looks like the case is starting to come together. And this Inspector Hercule Poirot really does know his stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing it all unravel. Thank you so much for joining us. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. For you reviewers, stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon.